The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We are in the book of 1 Corinthians. If you have a Bible with you, we will have all the verses up on the screen. Um, But we are just kind of working our way uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, through uh, the book of 1 Corinthians. If you don't have a Bible, we've got ones in the back as well. Um, And if you're not familiar with the Bible... Um, you're looking at the last, uh, open to the back cover, and then go in about 100 pages. Um, it's the book called 1 Corinthians, and then the chapter numbers are the big numbers, first numbers are the small numbers, and we are looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray. I'm going to read our verses, and then I'm going to pray, ask for God's help for all of us, and then we are going to just start working through this together. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? But because of the temptation to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise... The husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, and then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not as a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. All right, let's pray. Father, as we, um, as we touch on this topic of uh, sexuality and how our sexuality glorifies you, um, I pray that you would help us um, to not just figure out what you want for us, but to enjoy your good design for us, uh, to enter into the love of Christ and how even our bodies and our sexuality are designed um, to glorify you and to make much of Jesus. Would you do this because he's worthy of it? In his name we pray. Amen. Mike, would you be able to bring me my phone real quick? My, right up there. Um, sorry, I keep a timer so I don't go over the limit, you know. Um, <laughs> but, um, when we talk about the word uh, sexuality or sex, uh, I don't think there's much of a transition that we need in terms of understanding that we're going to get our attention. Um, certainly, that's a topic that's on everybody's mind in our culture, and it's certainly something that gets our attention um, no matter who you are. Uh, when we talk about sex and sexuality, um, I do want to acknowledge here, starting out first, first and foremost, that everybody comes to this topic with a level of interest and shame, right? We are uh, not holding up ideals here to berate each other. Um, We are not talking about this to batter you or batter batter me. Um, Just like uh, the church in Corinth, I think, actually, um, they would just be an extended campus of King's Cross where we would feel at home with these folks. Um, They are broken and needy. They come with a great deal of cultural indoctrination about what sexuality means. And just like you and uh, me, um, we all come to this topic uh, needing Jesus' help. I come as a broken sinner with a broken sexuality, needing Jesus to help me just as much as you do. And 
So this is not going to be a moralizing sermon or a passage where we talk about this is what sex looks like and this is only the only way that it's done. But we do want to ask, what is this topic of sexuality? When we talk about it, um, we want to back up for a second and say, when we bring up this category, there's something that we need a little bit of some help seeing the picture a little bit more clearly. There's this old story, an old fable of uh, an old, an old uh, salmon uh, swimming down the fish, swimming down the river, and he passes two young salmon passing the other way, and he says to the young salmon, "How's the water, boys?" And about ten feet later, the young salmon, young salmon, look to each other and say, "What's water?" That's how we, that's how sexuality works for us. We just are not aware of the cultural world of sexuality that we live in. Um, we have a certain way of thinking about it. And so what we want to do before we get into this passage is actually just kind of take a step back and ask what does, um, what are some broad brush strokes, maybe three categories of how people throughout history have thought about what sexuality is. Uh, because um, again, like those young salmon, we think that everybody thinks about sexuality the same way we do. And uh, historically that is just clearly not true. So what I want to do, um, actually I'm pulling some of this from an article uh, by the illustrative Tim Keller, as you guys would not be surprised. Um, but there's three major understandings of sexuality through history. We're going to talk about each three of these uh, real quick, and then we'll get into our passage. But I think as we, un we break these down, you, you will see that each of these translates in one way or another to our own lived experience, right? Sexual realism, one, uh, one way sexuality has been understood, sexual realism, that is, sex is a natural appetite. This is a big deal for the Greeks and Romans um, back then. Um, historically, it was just treated as like a natural appetite, just like you get hungry, just like you need sleep. Um, sex is just treated like an appetite. You just, whenever you feel it, you do it. There's, it's effectively like an amoral category, right? Um, there's no, there's no um, morality to it. It's just something you need to learn how to do. It's a skill, and it's something you need to learn how to do safely. Um, this is what I, when I was in uh, school, this was just kind of the way uh, sex ed was taught when I was in school. I assume it's still the same today. But sexual realism is just this idea that sexuality is just natural appetite and you give in when you're hungry. Uh, sexual Platonism is sex is an animal passion, right? There, in, um, in the old days, there was this thing called Hellenistic philosophy, and it, was, it held that basically the spiritual person is more important than the physical person, and that anything done with the body is nasty and gross and degrading, and that um, anything to do with sex especially was disgusting and gross. It's a dirty thing, and it's a necessary evil, but it really is not something um, that should feed who you are because the, the spiritual person, the intellectual person, is the higher person. And when you feed that person, um, that's your ascent into God or nirvana, and so sex was treated as a necessary evil to promulgate family, to make children, or to promulgate the family name, right? So that's why emphasis on having sons to get the name passed on, right? Uh, you think of, when I think about this historically more recently, you think of like uh, Victorian era. Uh, this is, um, sex is just kind of like tolerated, but it's not, um, it's not really a good thing. I think this is probably when we're looking at this passage here in 1 Corinthians 7, um, this presenting question, right, is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? That's the background of that, past, that question. This Hellenistic philosophy is sexual Platonism. Sex is an animal passion. And then 
as usual, you have a swing, right? You have, you have a pendulum swing one side to the other. The other version of this would then be sexual romanticism, sex as a repressed creativity. So if in um, Hellenistic thinking, you thought of sexuality as being connected to the physical, um, and that was a source of evil because it was a physical thing. Uh, romanticism locates the evil about sex and the cultural. So really what it is is sex is this natural creativity and um, realization of your identity and that it's all the cultural pressures that repress that and that cause you to have all these inhibitions and all these uh, repressive sexual urges. Uh, I, frankly, I see this a lot on magazine covers, podcasts, TV shows, etc. Right, the main... The main goal of this uh, thinking is get rid of sexual inhibitions to discover your true self, right? You discover yourself through sexual expression. So those are kind of some three categories, and I bet as we were talking about those, depending on your upbringing or kind of your background, uh, one of those is, or maybe two of those, maybe all three of them, are going to feel very familiar. You're going to feel like, man, that, that sounds like something that I've come to the table, when we talk about sexuality, I've come to the table with this background in mind. And what we have Paul doing in 1 Corinthians 7 is something so radically different that it only fits in the Bible, right? Because the Bible's perspective on sexuality doesn't fit into any of these. Um, the Bible's perspective on sexuality, when we, last week we looked at Genesis 1 through 3, one of the little things to note back when God created uh, Adam and Eve, and so he made Adam fall asleep. He rose, he, he, he took Eve out of a rib, made Eve, brought Adam to Eve, and actually the first words that a man ever spoke on uh, a day celebrating women was poetry. So that's why men, you should write poetry for your wives. But <laughs> the initial uh, perspective was that animal reproduction was assumed, human sexuality was celebrated. This is a little quote from Ray Ortland in his little book on marriage that he recently published. Animal reproduction is assumed. Human sexuality is celebrated, except without a double A there. Um, this is the perspective of the Bible, where human sexuality is celebrated. Right? You have it over and over and over again. That God has designed sexuality to give us a picture of union, intimacy, and delight in Him. Because that's the relationship that He wants with us. It's so important to God that he actually gave an entire book of the Bible, right? You've got 66 books in the Bibles, and the Bibles, some are long, some are short. You've got an entire one devoted to the delights and joy of sexuality. Not to mention the fact that while some in our culture think the Bible is being repressive to women, the main voice of sexual expression in the book of Solomon is a woman expressing her desires and delights and joys in physical intimacy with her husband. That is not what you expect in a book that is, quote, repressive to women. It delights in sexuality. So as we're looking at this passage, here's where, again, like I said last week, we are not going to turn this into a political stump speech one way or the other. We're just going to look at this and say, how does this apply to us as disciples and help us to follow Jesus? And the main point of this passage is, we're just going to say it, we must embody the love of Christ in our sexuality. That's the main point of this passage. We must embody the love of Christ in our sexuality, one way or the other, whether single or married. Right? That's the way we're going to cut at this is I don't want uh, our friends here who are single to kind of like check out, be like, 
Okay, this is for the married folks, and I don't do that stuff, and so this is just for them. This is actually for all of us, because sexuality is true of you whether you're married or single, right? If you're a man, you have a sexuality. If you're a woman, you have a sexuality. How you use it will embody the love of Christ. That's what we're called to in this passage. And we're going to talk about it here, the first, first seven verses. Actually, we're going to pick up on this more next week when we talk about the, more, of the, more of the chapter. But sexuality has to, is how we use our bodies distinctly as men and women to enjoy and serve God's good designs. So how do we embody the love of Christ in our sexuality? We must see it in the design and God's design for, of sex around his delights. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to say sexuality is designed around God's delights because God's a joyful God, right? If he wasn't joyful, we wouldn't have woken up this morning. You wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be breathing. He wouldn't be showering us with mercy. But he's a joyful God who loves to give mercy. And so he's designed the world around his delights. That means that's true for our sexuality. So we're just going to look through this passage in four parts of God's delights and how that defines our sexuality. So the first thing we're going to be looking at our sexuality must embody God's delight in promising. So we're going to pick up here back in verse 1 and 2. God's delight, our sexuality must embody God's delight in promising. Now concerning the matters about what you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Right, I just want to say up front, when I read this, the first verse, um, I can almost hear kind of Paul's, uh, there, there is a righteous grinding pastoral frustration that can kind of come out. Right? You hear the first question, right? Let me, just, let me just read this for you in a way that may, might kind of emphasize this. Is it good for a man to have sex with a woman? Like, do you hear almost the misogyny in that sort of, this almost kind of re, like the woman's the problem? She's the one that's going to really cause the man to get stumbled up. She's the one that's going to degrade the man. She's the one that's going to defile him in his ascent to his purity. Right? And in response to that, actually, if you, I would invite you to go do this through the passage. In response to this kind of like degrading question about women, Paul, every time he addresses the question, splits it halfway of saying, the men do this, the women do this. He respond, I, mean, I went through this last week. Every moment, it's half and half. His pastoral response to this question that diminishes the value of women is to say, men and women have equal value, dignity, and worth before God, including their sexuality. Right? There is equal dignity and worth between men and women, and Paul, and just a this sort of very, very um, winsome but sneaky pastoral move, just kind of like subtly corrects them. No, no, you're asking if women are the problem? No, no, here's the deal. And then we're going to see this a little bit more deeply as we go through this passage. Women and men have dignity and value in their sexuality. But then verse 2, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife. Notice equal parts and each woman her own husband. Right? Sex is designed to be the fulfillment of, of the joy of absolute commitment and union, right? This is, um, sometimes people will treat the Bible like it's supposed to be like this list of codes, like, um, well, it doesn't say that premarital sex is sin, therefore it's okay, blah, blah, blah. Actually, the, assumption, the grand assumption that delight comes from 
commitment is all through the Bible, right? That starts the Bible out, right? God creates Adam and Eve, and then he comes in and says, I'm going to be in a committed relationship with you, and then he walks and enjoys their presence with him. Same way sexuality is designed to be the same thing. Sexuality is designed to be in the, prom, in, in the context of commitment, which is why, right, back in chapter 6, when Paul talks about um, the, 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 the shame of, in their context of, of people going to the temple and having sex with prostitutes, where he says in verse 16, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? For it is written, the two shall become one flesh. Now, he's not saying there's like some like magical thing that happens. But what he is saying is that sex is designed to represent the absolute wholehearted commitment of my life to yours. And then to go to somebody and say, I'm just going to use a physical exchange to get what I want, is a degrading reality of what sex is designed for, right? The physical, to physically unite yourself to someone that doesn't include promising to be committed to that person is a distortion of God's design, and it isn't what we see in the gospel, right? This is what we find in Jesus, right? <laughs> he has designed his own relationship with us, the church, where he says, I want you to be with me. I want you to be in my family. I want you to be my bride. And then what does he do? He comes and gives himself completely and fully, Right? He lays his life down for his people so that he can bring us into himself and enjoy his, our presence with us. This is, why, this is why we're saying sex is designed to embody God's delight and promising. Who's the one who gets a short end of the stick all through the Bible with God making a promise? God is. Right? If you read the Bible from cover to cover, you will realize that either um, God has a bad track record of picking people or people are just bad, Right? God has chosen to promise himself to a people that he will redeem, and Jesus embodies this promise of God's love. The sexuality is designed around this idea by God of embodying a promise, a commitment to another person. So here's just a few thoughts on how we can apply this in our lives, right? Celibacy and marriage will be countercultural. Right? I think that prevailing, go back to our categories we introduced, sexual romanticism, this idea that you discover yourself through sexual fulfillment and gratification, that will, um, this will seem very countercultural. I, I don't know, some of you might be aware, uh, some of my family is from Norway, right? My mom and her dad and all that, they all come from Norway. And so I've gone to visit Norway before. And I found it interesting when I was visiting my aunt there, um, she was commenting on the, the way Norwegians think about marriage. And I think this is not just true in Norway, but increasingly in our culture. You, what you'll find is that um, a couple will be um, in a relationship, cohabitating, and all that goes with that. But then when they want to have a family, they'll get married, provide stability for the kids. And so marriage is viewed as a way of providing stability for a family unit rather than being the context of celebrating sexual delight and joy between a couple. Do you see, and do you see what, what, what marriage then becomes? Marriage becomes this context that's focused on kids rather than the couple. That, that is uh, a kind of a conversion of like this Hellenistic and rom- romanticistic idea, right? That, that uh, marriage only exists because we need to preserve the family line, um, but we want to delight and enjoy our own sexuality as discovering ourselves until it's inconvenient with kids. One thing I think that we can insert into the sexuality of the conversation as Christians as a way of witnessing to the gospel is this question. 
or this statement. If you're interested in somebody to be married to, I want to delight in you physically so deeply that I will give my whole life for your good. I want to delight in you so deeply that I will give my life for your good. Right? That's why we have in our marriage vows, husband and wife, they exchange it. I, for sickness and health till death do us part. Right? That's why that vow is so important. Because there's times when you just want to eject. But I want to commit to the person and enjoy them for who they are. Right? This is, I think this has been stripped from the cultural discussion and sexuality always says something about our spirituality. And for our single or celibate friends among us, I think in a hookup culture, right, where you swipe left or swipe right, right, you know what I'm talking about? Imagine a culture where men and women promise to love each other like brothers and sisters and not how to get pleasure from each other, right? Swipe left, swipe right is about how I can get something from you for myself. But imagine a culture where men and women broken by how they've been used and abused sexually can come in and feel safe next to you. As a sister, she can sit across from me and know that I have no interest in getting something from her. And the same for you. That, that is a gospel witness of how God values promising in a sexuality. So you see, this is going to apply both ways, married or single, this is about our sexuality and how we use our bodies to, to embody the love of Christ. So we're going to pick up here in verse 3 and 4. The second thing we're going to see is not only do we embody the love, God's delight in promising, but we embody God's delight in giving. Verses 3 through 4, the husband shall give to his wife her conjugal rights, likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but his wife does. Right? Again, are you, are you picking up on the even parts here? Right? And, and just when, it, when, when Paul gets into talking about um, who has rights um, sexually over their spouse, he starts talking about the woman and then the man and then the man and the woman. It's equal parts. Right? This is, again, um, there is a somewhat of a uh, cultural assumption that men are, are more interested in sex than women, which is certainly true in some ways. But in the biblical perspective, um, the reasons for sex are multi are, are, are uh, a lot. I don't know what the word is there. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of reasons for desiring intimacy and physical affection with somebody else, with your spouse. And the Bible doesn't really get into talking about which one's more important or which one's more valid sexually than the other. It just says um, you have these rights with your spouse, and you need to be honoring those with your spouse. Right? And the interesting thing is that in verse 3, the statement is more, I owe you rather than you owe me. Right? So read that with me. The husband shall give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. Right? The, the emphasis there is, I owe you rather than taking. Right? And then verse 4, I do not have authority over me to do whatever I want. Right? Do you, do you hear that? For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. I'm, I'm under your authority. Right? That, that cuts both ways. And by the way, let me just emphasize this really quick. Uh, husbands, this is not a verse, verse 4, to berate your wives with to get your sexual kinks out of. Right? This cuts both ways. This is not a way just to badger your wife to get what you want. The posture is giving. 
right? Th- again, this is just going to feel so strange because in our culture, the, uh, our sexual discussion is all about how do I realize, how do I find, how do I discover? And then in this passage, God's saying, I've designed sexuality to be about lovingly giving in a way that, that flourishes somebody else, gives to them. And why is that? That is because all through the Bible, one of the startling pictures from this book is that God delights to give us God. God loves to give us himself from beginning to end. God insists on bringing us near to him, to give us himself, to draw us into himself, to give us him, right? Not his little, his creation and trinkets, though he wants to give us those things too. He wants to give us God himself, right? I've been thinking about this so deeply because I, I find that I struggle to get this in my own heart. So maybe that's why I bring it up in my sermons a lot. But if Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in, a, is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. How does he do this? He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his what? With his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Right? This is the God who delights to give us himself. It's not just kind of like, oh, okay, whatever, let's hang out. Or it's not even kind of like, yeah, let's do lunch together, and oh, i got to cancel. Sorry, 10 minutes late. No, this is God who delights to give us himself, delights to give us who he is, delights to sing and rejoice over us with all that he is. Right? If you, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but if you read through the Gospel of John, read through the Gospel of John, there are about 900 verses with 100 references to God the Father. And you know what? In all those 100 references to God the Father, he's giving, sending, helping and loving, right? God the Father in the book of John is massively proactive. You cannot read about nine verses until you get to a verse about God the Father doing something to show us who he is, to give us himself to us, to delight in us, to give us more of himself, right? If you want something to do this afternoon, it'll take you about two or three hours to read through the gospel of John. Do it and see, highlight all the places. I mean, I don't write in my Bible because that'd be a sin, but you can write in your Bible if you want. (laughs) But you get like John 14, 16, and I will ask the Father, and he will what? Give you the helper, that he will be with you forever, right? And then you read through John 17, and then it's just packed full of give, 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 right? God is a giver. He's not, he's not hurting because he gives, right? In Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will what? Give you the desires of your heart, which is God himself. Right? With our sexuality, we give rather than demand. I want to remind you, we saw a few weeks ago how 1 Corinthians 13 is the sun in the center of 1 Corinthians. Everything else orbits around it. And you have this statement in 1 Corinthians 13:5: love does not insist on its own way. Right? That applies to our sexuality. We don't insist on what we want because, frankly, I would, I would wager a guess that majority of what our sexual desires are are shaped by our culture than what actually honors and blesses the other person. I, I'm just going to say the way porn has totally, totally hijacked our mental thinking on this whole category has totally radically shaped how we think about what we want and what we think we need and what we think we want in our marriage. It reorients your thinking about what love and sexuality and intimacy are when you think about how can I give myself to this person? 
Sex will display that picture of self-giving to someone who is devoted to you as a whole person, and therefore the sex celebrated is of giving your whole self to them. So how do we apply this? Well, first of all, I think it's pretty obvious if you're married. But to our celibate and single friends among us, how does this apply? Right? Again, remembering that being a man or a woman who is created with a sexuality does not necessitate actually engaging in sex with somebody else. It's using your body to delight and enjoy the love of Christ to another person. So we see that in Jesus himself and the Apostle Paul, right, who were both men who were sexual beings, who had a sexuality, and who were celibate and gave themselves to other people. Actually, that's what Paul's going to go on and talk about. He's going to kind of talk about this in the next section that we're going to get to next week, about how his celibacy was a way of actually giving himself more fully to the mission because he didn't have the distractions of children and marriage and the family life, right? Anybody who's been married for a week knows what Paul's talking about. He's like, yeah, you know, it's great being married, but if I really wanted to commit to the, to the mission of Jesus, being unmarried would be a great way to give more. Right? But imagine this, kind of, kind of echoing what we said last time. Imagine giving to your neighbors and friends a culture of purity where you're a safe person for them to be around, where you're not taking, but in purity and integrity, you're giving yourself to them in appropriate ways to cultivate a context where they can love and grow in Jesus. Right? If I, I think of the singles in our church, and there's many that I think of where get, the gift of hospitality is just outstanding, where they welcome people into their home and give people from who they are as a man or a woman that's not demanding, but giving themselves to other people. All right, we're going to pick up here because we want to keep moving through the passage. We're going to pick up here in verse 5 embodying God's delight, our sexuality must embody God's delight in protecting. Verse 5, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because, you, because of your lack of self-control. Right? Remember uh, the presenting question that Paul addressed here at the beginning of the paragraph, right? Um, is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? Right, and we're going to just kind of leave that there with all that we've said. And Paul kind of gets back to saying, basically, um, everybody is celibate at some point in their lives, but celibacy should not be the norm in marriage. That's kind of how he cuts that one. He says, celibacy, everybody's going to be celibate at one point, right? Uh, whether it's a certain time of the month, or whether it's after childbirth, or whether it's for a trip, or whether it's for whatever, every married couple is going to have a, a season of celibacy. We're just going to be frank about that, right? Our single friends, they're going to have a long, prolonged period of celibacy. But we're going to be realistic about the appetites here, the desires and the sexual, desi sexual urges that come along with it. We give ourselves sexually to each other in marriage because there are desires that God has given us to build our union and intimacy. And when those desires are unsatisfied and unaddressed, those frustrations create a hot mess for Satan to tempt us with, right? I mean, that's just basically it. He's just saying, like, when those desires in marriage are not dressed, they're not discussed, they're not 
even on the table for discussion. It just creates a hotbed for Satan to come in and just kind of throw a little click here. Respond to this. Talk to this person. It's not good. Right? Not merely talking about, we're not talking about like the sexual release. Right? The, the reality, I hope you picked up on this, the reality of sex and sexuality is designed around this beautiful dance of union, intimacy, and affirmation, and delight. It's not merely just the physical kicks. Right? There is a great deal that goes in to, to sexuality as God's designed it. And each one of those points, when unaddressed and uncared for in a marriage, offers an avenue for temptation. Right? So we're not just talking about the physical stuff. There are loads of temptations that cut both ways in marriages between men and women. Right? Men tend to be more Venn diagram on one side. Women tend to be more Venn diagram on the other. Don't care about that. The reality is that that has to be a discussion point in our marriages. So I just, just to connect this back to the gospel is that Right, And if we're saying our, our sexuality must embody God's delight in protecting, the fact that these verses are in here, that the fact that the Bible is so frank about this stuff, the fact that the Bible does not blush in talking about these categories is a way of showing that Jesus wants to protect us. <laughs> that this, you have to ask, why is every passage in the Bible? When God could have put anything else in there, why is this passage there? This passage is in there because Jesus is trying to protect us from something. Right? <sighs> So, a few thoughts on how we kind of live this one out, and then we'll keep moving on. In your marriage, you need to talk about frequency of sexual relations. I'm just going to say it frank like that. You need to talk about what is, what is healthy, what are good expectations. I realize this sounds incredibly unromantic. In any of the uh, premarital classes that I do with folks, I just kind of say, uh, it doesn't matter. Every meal you eat doesn't have to be a steak and potatoes meal, Right? But you have to have a discussion about how you're going to engage and care for each other in this category, both the husband and wife, how you're going to protect each other, how you're going to care for each other. A second thought on this is the connection between prayer and celibacy. Right? Did you notice that except for um, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, right? There has to be a mutual agreement, right? not just one holding it over the other, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together again. Right? Celibacy requires prayer because celibacy is about finding intimacy and delight and joy in God himself, not in the physical gratification that we want. So the reality is that our married friends can learn a lot from our celibate friends when they are in those seasons of celibacy. This, I don't really think that this needs to be like a taboo topic just to say, hey, here's what's going on. I'd like to learn from you. Can we pray together? Like, I just don't think that that should be so, like, if we're, if we're getting hung up on that, it might just be because we need to be a little bit more frank like the Bible is. Like, I remember when I was in college and I was praying for my friends to have um, great, sexual, great sex in their marriages because I just wanted them to enjoy that aspect of their lives, right? It wasn't anything perverse or weird. It was just kind of like, that's good for them. And I want them to enjoy that. We should be cutting both ways on that. Those natural desires are directed towards God in prayer for wisdom and how to use them and that energy to best serve others. And let me just say this. I want to wager a guess. I'm just going to guess here. 
that there are many in this room, if not all, who failed in this category. So again, we are not holding this up as some ideal to berate and beat each other over the head with. When we talk about this category, I want to, I want to remind you to sit in the pews of Corinth. These people were broken and needy and desperate for Jesus. And he still chose to love them and enjoy them and delight in them and speak to them because he already knew what was up. And the book of 1 Corinthians, remember what starts the book of 1 Corinthians? Right? I'll just read it to you because I, the, the words of Scripture are more powerful than anything I could say. Right? 1 Corinthians 2, 2, For I have decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the way the book starts. I know, G Jesus says, I know what you've done. I know how messed up this is. I know how broken and needy you are. And it has been paid for. Remember how we've talked about this in the chapter as we look through this? <laughs> right? You were bought with a price. That's the verse that comes right before chapter 7. You were bought with a price. And then at the end of the book, what's the end of the book of 1 Corinthians? Does anybody remember this? Now, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered you of first importance that which I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then he appeared more than 500 brothers. The Bible, this book, begins and ends with the Gospel. So when we talk about these categories, especially ones that feel very intimate to our own experience of failure and sin, we must remember they are couched in this entire context of grace, that God is not saying... <laughs> I got you. He's coming alongside you, brother or sister, to forgive the sins, to heal the brokenness, to renew and restore, so that this experience that we're talking about here in 1 Corinthians 7 is in fact an invitation to a new way of life today, not tomorrow. Jesus is not perfect, demanding perfection and then cutting you out when he sees anything less. That's why he gave himself. That's why he promised himself. That's why he's protecting you in himself so that our sexuality can be redeemed and renewed to reflect the love of Jesus. All right, we're going to end here with verses 6 through 7. So we've talked about how our sexuality embodies the promising of God, the giving of God, the protecting of God. And then the seven, six, verses 6 through 7, our sexuality embodies God's delight and providing. Verse 7. Uh, we'll, we'll read verse 6 and 7, and we'll, we'll stop on verse 7. Now as a concession, not as a command, I say this. I wish all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Right? You, you see there, remember, we just touched on it from, from John 14, where God gives the Holy Spirit, right? He is providing here again, the Holy Spirit shows up because he's kind of like sneaky, right? You can't quite see him very easily. But each has his own gift from God. That word gift is charisma, which is a spirit gift, a spirit-given gift, a grace-given gift. That's the Holy Spirit kind of sneakily sitting in the passage and saying, I am here to give God's grace and goodness for every station and area of your life, specifically married or single, right? God's gift are for the Holy Spirit to help each of us in each of these areas to glorify Christ. Right now, 
this is we're gonna we're gonna explore this category of singleness and celibacy more next week. We're just gonna touch on it real quick and say, I, I want to remind you of the culture of the time. The culture of the time viewed sex as basically I just got to get children provided for. I got to get children and I got to get them uh, to carry on the family name and heritage so that we kind of move on with life, right? And there, that the sex is just seen as like getting kids. And and at the same time. Singleness and celibacy would have been stigmatized big time, right? You would have been seen as a failure. You wouldn't have seen as caring for your family. You would have seen, been seen as somebody who didn't care about the, the national identity and promulgating the national identity, right? There was, there was a lot of things that was like, you were a bit of a cancer on society if you were single. <laughs> and here the Bible comes in and shockingly validates and affirms the value of singleness to the kingdom of God. Right, here's a little quote by Stanley Hauerwas. I'm not quite sure how to say his last name. And we, remember, we must remember that the sacrifice made by the single is not that of giving up sex, but that much more significant sacrifice of giving up heirs. Right? Picking up on that? There can be no more radical act than this, and is the clearest institutional expression that one's future is not guaranteed by the family, but by the church, right? There is actually a witness to the gospel and singleness and celibacy that says, my future is in Christ and secured by Christ and for Christ. Christ is the one providing my future. It's seen through the conversion of people for the, into the church, seen for the, uh, through the spread of the gospel through my neighborhood and city, and I'm going to give my life to that, and I'm not going to make my life about producing this cultural expectation of heirs. Right? And we're going to look at the other side of that next week and say, the other side of that is to say that married, the married expression of faithfulness to the gospel is to say the work of the church is hard and arduous and difficult, <laughs> like having kids and raising a family. But here is, the, here is what we're going to see in the middle of this. I wish that all of you were as myself, but but each has his own spirit-given gift from God, one of one kind for another, the spirit's provision for our sexuality, and the gifts of the spirit for marriage and singleness. The view is taken away from idolizing the idolization of sexuality in a way that is self-discovery or a way that ensures the family line, but of pointing to Christ's love for the church and his presence to grow and provide for the church through his spirit. The mission of the church focuses, refocuses our sexuality. We're going to get into this more next week. The advance of the gospel through showing his love, marriages that cultivate a home of welcoming love for the broken and weary, men and women who serve rather than take from each other sexually. Right. Ultimately, our sexuality is a picture. I hope you're picking up on that as we're looking through this. God has designed this thing that we feel is a little kind of like awkward to talk about, right? But is so prevalent in each of our daily lives to be a picture, a daily reminder of God's ultimate picture of what He wants for us. So we, we each go to sexuality and sex for comfort, love, affirmation, delight and joy. God's designed that into that. We don't need to be embarrassed about those things. But we don't find those in each other, even if you're married. Those are pictures 
of what God is leading us to on that final day. The Bible begins with a, uh, a garden, a wedding, and a feast, and the Bible ends with a garden, a wedding, and a feast because our sexuality between those two points points from one to the other. We aim our sexuality at discovering and enjoying and being with God himself rather than finding ourselves here on our own terms. We, we aim our sexuality at a God who's promised himself to, in, to enjoy us and delighten us and celebrate and be with us forever and ever and ever. We aim our sexuality at a God who's given us himself, even though we have often and frequently spat in his face and rejected him. He has persisted in loving us because he loves to love people that he can only love and they can't give anything back. Right? We aim our sexuality to God who loves providing for us and protecting, for, protecting us. The air we breathe, the food we eat, the church that we enjoy, the songs that we sing, all the things that we enjoy in this life, even the sexuality that we enjoy, those all point towards a God who is providing himself for a thing called eternity. I mean, how do you even quantify what that is with God himself? We see her, a God who delights in providing and giving himself. Right? This is why we must embody the love of Christ in our sexuality. Because our sexuality is ultimately not about ourselves, but it's about Jesus, who's embodied the love of God's delights in us. So let's pray. Father, as we talk about this category of what sexuality is and what it's designed for and aimed at, God, I pray that you would give us perspective, humility, comfort, even areas where we need to confess and ask for your help and forgiveness. And God, I, I pray that each of these would be experienced as your moments of grace to renew and restore us with our sexuality. God, would you help us to be a people that looks to embody the love of Christ and frankly, Lord, that will be countercultural. But Lord, we delight in who you are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.